All right, so a very warm welcome to the spiritguides.co.uk network radio. Uh, a special guest tonight, we have Graham Nichols, is back on. He was with us a while ago talking about our body experiences and is now back to talk about his, his debut book. So, Avenues of the Spirit. Of so, the human spirit, yeah. Of the human spirit, okay. I mean, do you want to give us, give us a quick rundown of what the book's about? Well, it's it's basically my my journey and also uh, spiritual philosophy that's arisen out of that journey, out of that um, exploration that I've done over, well, pretty much my whole life, really. Um, so the book starts with some unusual experiences when I was very young, um, seeing an apparition, and then moves into out-of-body experiences, um, which is obviously like my main area. Um, and then it moves through some of the hardships and violence and problems that I encountered growing up in London and how that shaped me and how that made me look at ideas like compassion and non-violence and look at spirituality as a whole in a way. Mm. That was it, it, and then I, I draw on all of those experiences, both the spiritual and the more urban, you know, everyday sort of stuff and um, distill that into a philosophy at the end of the book so it's kind of all tied together at the end yeah I mean that's one of the things I find actually quite um, inspirational from reading the book Graham is that I mean especially more recently with a lot of the, the, the riots and the violence that's been happening across the country our, sure. you know how people have kind of thrown into you know d- desperate situations through poverty really and uh, you were kind of amongst all that growing up but you decided to take a path out of that you know through the spiritual things that you were getting um and i guess either way you could have gone down the other route but you kind of lifted yourself out of it i mean it must have been quite tough growing up having these experiences that you've had an out of body experiences um in, in that kind of environment I, I imagine there probably wasn't many people around you that could have really helped you with that no, not at all. And my my family had no sort of religious leanings or anything like that. It was a very ordinary working class environment. My my family and the people around me. Interestingly, though, I think I think a lot of people around me did see in what I was experiencing something of value, and and they were interested in what was going on. And people were very supportive. Actually, I I didn't find that people around me in general were negative about the experiences. They were more interested. I mean, there were, there were some negative situations where people were maybe fearful of what the experiences might represent, you know, and worrying that our body experiences were something dark or difficult or something like that. But, but that was in the minority, for sure. Most people were interested what, what these things were and, and I suppose like society in general, you know, looking at all the TV shows about psychical experiences and spiritual ideas, people are interested in what these things represent and what they can tell us about life. So yeah, I, I think I experienced that on a smaller level in my own life, basically. Yeah. So I mean, sort of fast forward to the present day, you've had you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of out-of-body experiences. Um, you've also had premonitions. Um, you've seen yeah. things before they've happened. Um, but you know, if you go way back to where it all started when you was really, really young, was it about, did you have sudden experiences cause, or did you kind of um, have to teach yourself to do it? Well, I, when, I, when I was very young, like 
maybe between four and six. Um, that was when I first had anything unusual happen, and that was when I saw an apparition in the the doorway of my home. I walked out of my bedroom just into the normal hallway in the tower block I grew up in, um, and there was a, a figure standing the full length of the doorway up in front of me, um, looking at me. And I, you know, I mean, obviously I was pretty terrified as a little kid and I just remember, yeah, like falling to the ground basically and being like really overwhelmed by by it and not knowing what to do, how to, how to react kind of thing. Mm. So that was the very first thing that happened. Maybe that opened me up to that there might be more going on. I mean, I remember... I, I considered probably just for a few days like the ideas of religion and stuff and pretty much straight away was like that's not for me I, I, don't, I don't really believe that but I did at the same time think there is more going on because what were these experiences and um, yeah fast forward a few years later and then I started to have um, fleeting out-of-body experiences where I would uh, be a few feet above the ground standing well not standing but you know vertically um, so just a few feet and they'd only last like a matter of seconds or or so and then I would be back in my body mm. um, but again these these events made me say well what what's going on here and then I got a book on on how to have out of body well what about out of body experiences like looking at them and what they are and that led me to learn to do it so yeah because so. of reading the the book you, you um i think you it took you a while to really bring it on like you try, sort of practicing all these different techniques where you sort of try and visualize yourself outside your body somewhere or a different place and you're kind of struggling with it for a while and uh, and then at some six point, months yeah. yeah yeah so you was having these experiences before you tried that so that they kind of inspired you to Try, no, sort of look into it further and then when you was trying to learn it you found it difficult <laughs> yeah I, well I'd only had like I say these fleeting experiences where it happened for a matter of seconds a few times that was that was all I'd had but obviously even for a few seconds it's enough to make you mm. say wow what was that you know what what's going on you know so um and I think I saw something on tv or in a newspaper or something I, I don't remember where I saw it but I, I heard something about this concept about body experiences so that was what led me to really try to learn to do it yeah because you were sort of taking yourself out to various parts of London and then you witnessed certain signs or you saw certain things and then you'd go out the next day and confirm that you actually saw that so it wasn't a dream state if you like he was actually seeing the proper sort of uh you know, the reality that we see physically. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, that that was really what um, confirmed it for me. It was uh, yeah, the first the first one was uh, near Portobello Road Market in central London, and I went into a terrorist house. A terrorist house. And I was, what? A terrorist. Oh, a terrorist. House. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, I went yeah. into a terrorist house, and I was able to to read the. The name of the person who who lived there on on some office documents that were on the the first floor of the of the building. So that that was um, yeah, what really confirmed that there's something objective to this. And right up to the 
to the current day. I mean, when I, I, I now spend a lot of my time in Tallinn, the capital of Estonia, mm. um, and one one recent experience last winter, I came out of my apartment in in Tallinn, um, moved over the the buildings here and went into the the central square here, um, and I saw them hoisting the the Christmas tree into place that they that they put up, um, you know, as part of the decorations of the city kind of thing, um, and. When I came back to my body, it, it's only sort of five minutes walk from where I live. So I was like, this is something I can instantly go and check out. Mm. So I walked back down there and there they were exactly as I'd seen them, even at the same angle of hoisting the tree up. So, um, you know, right through to now, I, I still have, at certain periods have been able to verify the experiences quite definitely. Um, so that's something that, in terms of sceptical arguments and whatever, that I find really compelling um, to show that these things are real and not just hallucinations or dreams or whatever. Yeah, it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I know that, you, you know, it's, it's some experiences you talk about various energies coming in. So with the your first experience, you mentioned that you saw a, a fleeting uh, entity going by but then sort of bit later on you mentioned that you're you, I think you started some group up with some friends yeah. um, and that you was all sort of attempting your own sort of connection to trying to tune into something whether you're meditating or whether you're purposely trying to do an out-body experience and that's when you you had the um, the Soho now bombing premonition where you went off and you and you saw that and then it happened four days later yeah, and um, I mean, do you just want to tell us, tell the, the the listeners a little bit about that? Well, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, we 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 were doing regular meetings, sort of monthly meetings, where we were experimenting with different techniques of not not just with out of body experiences, but it, it, the idea was that someone would share a different technique every every month. Um, and this one particular meeting, I, I developed um, what I call the G technique, which is a an advanced breathing system that I still use in teaching people to have out of body experiences to this day. Um, and I I was demonstrating this to everyone in the it was like five or six of us. It wasn't a very big meeting, um, and then I I started to go through this whole process and I. I found myself just go into this really deep, intense trance, essentially, like more probably the most intense I've ever experienced. And I felt myself going through this natural environment, and then that natural environment seemed to dissolve, and I was standing on, on the corner of Old Compton Street looking down into Soho, and I saw this explosion burst out from the Admiral Duncan pub, um, and then saw people running towards it. So I remember vividly a guy passing close by and people moving around and just the general chaos and the feeling of the emotional impact as well hitting me after the event. So it was this whole connection with with the with the event, but at the, and it felt very physical and very like it was happening right at that moment. But of course it. It hadn't happened yet. It was something that happened five days later. So it was um, 
yeah, that was quite a significant event. It was probably the most powerful out of body experience I've had to date. Yeah, because when you when you were talking about that experience with the group, it was almost like you had an oppressive entity come in around you all. So, yeah. I mean, what do you think that was all about? Do you think the oppressive entity was oppressive because it was showing you something negative, or was it just showing you things that weren't nice? You know, was it, what, what was your feeling on that? It's it's very hard to say. I mean, it did feel like, yeah, there was some kind of consciousness or some kind of yeah entity, if you like, that was connected with the experiences on that particular day. Um, I don't know if it's whether when something very dark or you know very emotional like that happens, you you automatically associate it in some way as a as a personality, or you know you you project that, or whether it was something maybe connected with the events of that of that day. Um, I've, I've, it's it's very very hard to say. I mean, someone even mentioned the possibility that maybe it was the person who was planning to do those attacks was almost having an out-of-body experience or something. And we, we tapped into that. I mean, who knows? <laughs> they say that, you know, we have thoughts, thought forms are real, and they, they create kind of tangible energy that's probably sitting there in the astral. You know, it's all there. It's already planned. It's already happened. And, uh, and obviously just you've gone straight into it and picked it up, perhaps, I don't know. But I know in, in America there's a, a story about the Mothman that appears before, you know, big um, tragedies, basically, like a bridge collapsing and stuff like that. So, you know, maybe there, there are energies there that do bring, you know, warnings. You know, not that there's much, you can do much about it, but, you know, it must be quite, I mean, not to be, I'd, I'd try and put myself in, in that situation of seeing something like that, and I certainly wouldn't want to experience that it must be quite frightening to see well yeah i mean it was very emotional i suppose at the time i didn't know whether i mean i remember i thought it was a premonition and i i i mentioned to the group and we all talked about it and i said that i thought it was some kind of attack of some description um i didn't know what exactly and i i didn't know whether it would actually happen it was you know, I mean, I'd never had any kind of premonition experience before, but I just felt like this was very unusual and very unique, um, especially because of that oppressive energy that I felt. Um, so, yeah, it was it was a very, very difficult thing to, to understand. And I, I, I had no idea what would happen. But then, obviously, when a few days later, the bombing did take place on exactly the same spot, it was too much to ignore obviously yeah and then you subsequently had the one on the with the seven seven as well have you i mean have you had any more any anything recently i haven't had anything since no which is probably a good thing hey (laughs) 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 well they also both had this characteristic bluish gray light to them as well to my vision um, so if I do ever get that in an out of body experience, um, it it really makes me pay attention. You know, this is like something very important usually. Mm, yeah, I mean, obviously, the, one of the important aspects of your book is that you know you're sort of talking about your life. 
you know some of the um, the hardships they had to go through, not through your own family, you had a very very caring family and everything, but it's the surroundings, the other people that are around you that wanted to inflict their hurt and anger on you, and you sort of characterise London as this kind of calm, sleeping creature if you like that you know just predator. wanted to, a predator <laughs> that just wants to lash out you know and a lot of people there sort of you know surrounded by that bitterness and anger sort of festering it and want to lash out all the time and you had some quite awful experiences where you know you were mugged and, and things like that and uh you know and, and obviously I, th- I think the key point is that you're trying to get across is that it, it sort of he was able to sort of pick the spirituality out of it really and um and turn it on its head you know for those experiences i mean a lot of people could have been sucked into it, really, and become, you know, one of those sort of gangsters, if you like, on the streets. But, sure. Well, yeah. well, I, I think part of the point of the book, in a way, is is that it's talking about that choice, that kind of crossroads that we we can reach in life, where we have choices about which direction we go in, and and also the how how we in, how we deal with. A circumstance or an experience that happens to us. So I suppose, yeah, with with um, with the the violence that I experienced growing up, and then having these premonitions as well later on of of difficult or violent emotional situations, it it all slowly through the out of body experiences and the idea of this interconnectedness or you know not seeing the violence as this thing. But understanding where it arises from, why why people would act in that way, and even within my own self, I, I mean, I describe in the book how after the violence that I experienced, I closed down a lot. You know, I, I created this, I suppose, persona to deal with London that I think a lot of people do. You build up this kind of wall in front of you, so that you can deal with the situations in big cities or with hostile people um, and I think through the other experiences the more spiritual level it made me look at all those things in a different way and slowly break down um, that that barrier that I built up and realize that there's an interconnectedness to everything and realize that these violent acts arise out of a deep frustration and a deep inequality that exists mm. so that that's kind of the, the root of spirituality in a way if you look at any spiritual philosophy it's always about seeing someone else in in your terms in like as you essentially that kind of oneness compassion um th- those kinds of ideas and i think once you start to realize that through what's happened to you or or whichever way it happens it's uh it's really powerful in your life and you and you have a you become more open, I think, and, and you stop fearing, and that's really, really important. Mm, yeah. And I think, you know, was, was she surprised with the, the the recent London riots? Do you think it's just it's something that was, you know, kind of brewing for a long, long time and, and had to come out? Um, I, I, do, I do think, yeah, I, 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 when, when, you're in these, when you're in these big cities and there's all this, you're... I think your influences shape so much about who you are as a person and obviously if we grow up in an environment where certain things are reinforced as as valid or for example when I was a kid there was this idea that 
um, being violent in some way was actually a good thing, a cool thing. You know, it's like you do this because it shows that you're stronger than other people and it gives you status. And I think when you feel helpless and at the bottom of society, you want status. And um, there's the whole thing, you know, a gun is one of the, or a weapon of any description is the easiest way to give yourself status in, in an instant. You know? mm. So I think that's underneath it all. I think there's this thing of lashing out at power or the power that, that dominates a lot of people's lives. And I think that's the frustration that fuels a lot of that, um, that kind of action, like riots and whatever. Yeah. I think even wanting lots of things like property and all of that, it's still the same. It's still, you want status, you want some symbol that you're powerful, that you're, you know, that you're not weak, essentially. Mm. I think it's we live in a very materialistic culture, you know, it's constant uh, adverts trying to sell us latest gadgets you know the fastest cars and, and stuff like that and you're constantly seeing celebrities with you know the most beautifulest or the you know, most best things really you know and people aspire to have those things don't they and if they can't afford yeah. to have it then they still want to have them even though they can't afford it and it's almost like society is just pushing down and the people at the bottom are just being squashed really you know and i think until we sort of learn to I don't know, strip all that away, really, and, um, you know, not be so materialistic. I think it's never going to be resolved, really, is it, unfortunately? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's uh, part of what I'm trying to deal with in the book and trying to say um, there are other avenues, if you like. Mm. There's other ways that you can you can approach any situation and we can we can open up and we can, through a spiritual perspective or even you know looking at the world in a in a more engaged way it doesn't necessarily even have to be spiritual but just like really engaging with the world and realizing what is shaping your views where are those coming from is it just tv and advertising and media and is that really what we want to shape our our worldview you know is that really what we want to influence our lives you know that that's a choice that i think is really important in our world like you say, because it's so materialistically mm. run at the moment. Yeah. I mean, without being political and having an opinion on it, I think that the people at the top, I've got all their money, they're the ones that kind of sh- they shape our society, don't they? Because they're the ones that money with money to, to pay for the advertising, to market things a certain way. So they've kind of moulded society this way. Yet when there's riots, they're the ones that want to, you know, throw everybody into jail without really trying to um, work out what the true problem is. And, uh, you know, obviously the problem is greed, really. And not just greed at the bottom, but greed at the very top. That's my opinion. And obviously I don't want to hijack the show <laughs> with my opinion. So. No, I agree. Really, it no. sounds <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean... I mean so what, I mean, what other things are there that you, you've covered in the book? I mean, um, I've got I've got halfway through it, as I told you at the beginning. Um, it, it's, I find it so far very inspiring. I'm going to carry on reading it. Um, and I'm, I'm, to me, I'm, I'm always fascinated by the out-body experience stuff that you've done as well. Um, and on, again, on holiday when I was reading the book, I was thinking I've got to try and do this, try and learn some of these techniques. And in fact, one of the techniques that you spoke about, I had tried in the past and I... I got halfway out of my body. I could actually feel myself almost like jumping half out so that 
um, I was almost like vibrating backwards and forwards really, really fast. I could sort of come out and then jolt back in, but I couldn't quite make it out. And I found it exhausting, like, like real, real hard work to, to stay out. Um, is, is that something that gets easier if you keep on doing it? Oh, for sure, definitely. I, I, I think it's, uh, if you like, I think in the body is our default state. It's all, you know, we're, we're, we're inclined to be in that condition. So, when you start to leave the body, it can be almost like you're a bit rusty, or you've, uh, you know, you need to mu- uh, exercise muscles that you haven't worked for a long time. So mm. it's almost like that. But once you start to do it more regularly, you start to find that that becomes much more easy, and you can extend and move yourself to different locations much easier. And it, yeah, it definitely gets a lot, lot easier. Yeah. So have you, do you meet other people? Have you, have you actually met other people in your in one of your experiences that you've been able to contact afterwards? Um, there's been. It's interesting, actually. Um, I think one of the best ways in order to connect with another person is often in the beginning stages of a relationship. Interestingly, I think I think because that new relationship energy that kind of heightened feeling that you have and you're excited about the other person and you might be at different locations um i find that often when when someone's in that kind of state they'll have experiences of visiting the other person or of sensing the presence of the other person and things like that and you and you're both aware of it at the same time and things like that so that's that's something i've experienced a few times but um it's not the easiest thing to do in in the in the world of OBEs for sure, like connecting with another person. But I think when there's a, an emotional connection and a lot of uh, a lot of feeling there, mm. I think that's when when it's most likely that you'll be able to do that. Yeah. Okay. So, what other experiences can you share from the book? From the book, well, probably the most significant experience in in the book is also what happened when I was on. Sardinia, um, which was essentially this, it was it was a shift in my my whole world. Really, it wasn't it wasn't an out of body experience, but it was uh, it was a very interesting event because I, I planned to go to Sardinia just on a holiday. It was to celebrate my birthday with my girlfriend at the time. Um, we we got we we were quite spontaneous. We just kind of went over there didn't really plan much and we were just going to go to this particular place to stay and then when we got there we hadn't booked anything it was it was really a bit crazy off the wall kind of thing to do and then when we got there we we couldn't stay at the place we wanted to and then following that it turned out that my my cash card to get money out of the the cash point wasn't working and it turned out that only the money I had with me, which I think was about two hundred pounds, was all I had for the ten days we were away, including accommodation. Um, so we were in a fix basically. Mm. And this was, uh, you know, I, not long after graduating as a student, and I uh, didn't didn't have a lot of money anyway, and neither did my partner. And we so we uh, we found this almost like a cave, this very basic chalet down on the beach and we we paid for that and then we had a small amount of money left which 
was no more than a couple of euros a day. So we had to budget our whole time there. And what happened was because we had no no money and no frills with the, with the trip, we we spent more and more time just. Well, I I was meditating nearly every day. So essentially, it became a retreat. It became like a spiritual time where I just engaged a hundred percent with with what was going on, and I was reading a, a book on Zen and was really engaging with the whole idea of like deep meditation and whatever. So I was doing that every day, and then on one particular day, I laid down on my bed, and I just had this moment where I just seemed to shift from from it was almost like the old me, the the stuff that's in a lot of the early part of the book mm. seemed to just release, and then there was like this this change in me that that led me to set up my my organisation as well, the the Charme Network, and then got could get involved in more humanitarian work and doing work against poverty and things like that. So it, it became it became that I wanted to actually do things that would be positive in the world and, and really focus on compassion and I went vegan. Um, there was a lot of a lot of shifts towards compassion and a, a kind of deeper spirituality I think after after that event. So Although it was only a very simple moment, a very simple shift, in a way it was probably one of the most profound things in the whole, in my whole life. So, Yeah, wow. Because some people talk about Kundalini experience, don't they? But that's, in a way, that is a similar thing, isn't it? It's a, a, an I've awakening. had lots of things yeah. That, yeah. that you could definitely relate to Kundalini descriptions, for sure. I mean, actually, even... Even the experience, um, the premonition of the Soho bombing, the out-of-body experience that took place that day. Afterwards, with the, the the days after, I I had this sense of energy moving up and down through my body. I continued to have awareness of things before they happened for sort of days after. For example, I was on a bus and I thought of a person I hadn't seen for about three years. And then about two or three bus stops later, that person got onto the bus. So, you know, mm. there were, and this was like literally a day or two after the premonition of the Soho bombing. So, you know, there was like a, a whole set of things that were happening at that point. And I think, yeah, that, that continued on over the next few years. And it was in 2002 that the thing in Sardinia happened. So like mm. three years later. So yeah, yeah, great. So what what are your thoughts for the future? Where do you see things going? You know, not as a profit or anything like that. Just that, you know, <laughs> what, what is your feeling for the future? You know, for humanity and and the world, really. Just well, I suppose for me, a thing that I I feel is really important. I'm trying to focus more now on um, bridging some kind of gap between science and spirituality. Um, I feel that. The problems, if you like, that have arisen from religion and from various different ideologies have come from people not looking at the world in a, in a more objective way. It's this kind of irrationality that, that can arise from, from these ideas. And I think there's always a danger of that. And we always have to remember that, you know, we probably don't know, well, we definitely don't know all the answers and we've got, we've got to keep that in mind. Um, so I, I really value the scientific method, not the the science establishment, but 
the, the methodology, that way of looking at the world as it really is. Um, and that's, I think, when we bring that together with spirituality, then, then that's the only way forward. I think that's the only way that spirituality can avoid becoming something distorted. I think it's the only way that we can keep things on track. And so I think a spirituality that grows out of a scientific methodology is is where things are heading and where I think we've really got to focus. And I think more and more, you know, these documentary films that are coming out, more and more people are talking in that way. They're really embracing the 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 things that are being suggested by many areas of science now. So you've got this this really fascinating area that's arising of uh, yeah, spirit and science coming together. Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, obviously physics, a lot of it is theoretical, isn't it? And, uh, and in some ways it, it does bridge the gap with a lot of the concepts that people believed in spirituality, you know, a lot of the um, multi-dimensions, things like that. You know, they talk about string theory, don't they? Um, you know, even sort of time travel perhaps. And, and things like that so it, it, it does seem to be coming together but I, I do agree we do need to be a bit more uh, sort of rational with it and not run away and, and become sort of bogged down with things that are, you know that could get us in trouble really I suppose with people who don't who are too willing to be skeptical about the whole thing but yeah, yeah well there, there's there's a balance I mean the the skeptic the sceptical side of things can go so far the other way that, you know, no matter what the evidence, no matter what the data, um, they won't accept it. You know, I mean, mm. I mean, for example, um, Rupert Sheldrake, who I've worked with, um, some experiments that we, we organised as a joint project. Um, the reason that project actually arose was because of some research he'd done and claims from, from the sceptics that, it wasn't valid because it would have been possible that the person could have been concealing devices on their body somewhere. Now this is like, you know, several people would have all had to have been cheating. It was like really unlikely. But in order to to silence this kind of thing, we we located a a building where there was no possibility of any any signals because it was in a basement in an underground room with very thick concrete walls so there was a large metal door so there was basically no no signals in there and just for overkill um, we even used a device that cancelled out any mobile phone signals within a hundred meters so um, and we did all these experiments under those conditions with you know completely controlled environment uh, looking at telepathy so mm, yeah. and and still the same same level of results came out so you, you've got this you've got but still skeptics will will not accept it they'll still no. kind of dismiss it in some way but i suppose that's that's just because they have a particular ideology like like any other ideology and it and it will inform and, and influence what they what they believe and what they mm. see is there a thing called mitigated reasoning, isn't there, where you tend to read the things that endorse your own opinion? So you know. Sure, sure, and and, and we got to remember, even on on the, the on my side, of course, I I still am susceptible to those things, exactly the same as the skeptic. But we we have to we have to be aware of that, and and that's why I really try to read both sides of the arguments and try to say, well, 
you know, is this valid? For example, there was a recent study just come out um, from Birmingham University that was saying that our body experiences are all in the mind and, oh, yeah, and they're right. nothing but hallucinations. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, and their evidence for that was that there are cognitive differences in the way a person who's had out-of-body experiences will do certain tasks or or answer certain questions. Um, but of course that that's interesting and it, it's, it, it opens up questions but the problem we have left is still when accurate information comes through the out-of-body experience or through the remote viewing or whatever we're talking about. So you've got these these situations where, you know, especially with the 20 years of research that was done with remote viewing, where, I mean, Ray Hyman, who was the skeptic who looked at the evidence for the for the Stargate program, admitted that he had no explanation for how the things in the in the in the data were done, um, and that's a skeptic saying that, you know. And Jessica Utz, who was a statistician, said that in her opinion. The, the that it was completely proven. So, you know, when you actually look at what 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 the data says, it, it shows that these things are real. But unfortunately, the mainstream are listening to a tiny group of skeptics who are um, very vocal, but they're not really doing the research mostly. Mm. So. Well, there might be an element of. Um you know, maybe potentially paid individuals that want to, um, you know, have got an agenda to keep things a certain way, maybe, you know. And I know there are people that are sceptical and they're just like, they're kind of healthy sceptics and they haven't really looked at the, the opposite side to really appreciate the more esoterical things. But there do seem to be people that would, would rather this all be hidden, perhaps still, you know. Because I think if once we know this stuff, there's a potential that people... Um, you know, may not be, be easily controlled, perhaps in society, because you know you're more aware of reality and how things work. You're not so glued to TV and things like that. More open, the mm. individual. I mean, that's a consensus, a theory anyway that, that some people have. You know, whether it. Mm. Well, well, maybe. I mean, that that's something that I, you know, I I, I can't know, but I, I but I think that what is true is that the, the skeptical position is maintaining the status quo if you like they're not um they're in a very difficult position because they can't you know if one of them came to the conclusion that for example obes were real they would have to give up everything to do with skepticism because they would be completely um ridiculed within their own community so the, the the problem they have, I think, is that they have to be sceptical of basically everything. Um, and this even includes any sort of political position. So, for example, if one of them said that they thought there was some truth to the 9-11 conspiracies, they would, again, be ridiculed. You know, it's uh, they have to be consistent across the board and, and maintain the status quo opinion, the mainstream opinion. So I think that's really what the weakness in the whole skeptical community that they can't be they can't have any leanings towards a different direction or they can't offer a, a unique perspective it has to there's no no possibility of dissent if you like um it to, to talk in a political sense yeah i guess the, the only way they're going to really uh, believe or open up to it is when i suppose physics can 
can can describe how it works. Like they might they might find something that actually says actually this actually you could actually say that consciousness is this consciousness could be separate from the body because you know this this physics theory describes it in some way. You know, in the same way they're saying different dimensions. You know, yeah. maybe they could maybe measure consciousness as some f- physics constructs. I don't know where it could be, but you know, some oh, point. I, I think the two main re- the main objections from a skeptical point of view is one is that they feel that these things contradict physics. I, I think there's a lot of scientists who don't think that, but a lot of the mainstream scientists think that psychic abilities would contradict the laws of physics. Um, so that's that's one main objection. The second main objection is really that they're scared that it will open the door to religion. I think that's a real mm. underlying thing, and most of them have a real anti-religious, um, atheistic perspective that they that they're putting forward. Um, so, yeah, I think that those are the those are the the two key things that that hold back any any discussion of this. But yeah, yeah. for sure, if if physics finds the mechanism that these things work by then then for, de- for definite there'll there'll be a change in in the general opinions i mm. think because there's another thing called quantum entanglement where two is it two particles or something part of the same part yeah two, two photons yeah. or particles you separate them over any distance and you can change the spin the rotation on one particle and the other particle will instantaneously change. So you have this this um, interconnection, which is not dependent on time or space. Really, yeah. The, the usual the usual mm. bounds that, that that we fought before, and for a long time this was more theoretical. But now, due to work done in Geneva and uh, various labs, they they've shown that this is a a fact now. So, but there's still um, debate over whether there could ever be any information transfer between those two points. But that's still, I think, an open question. And they've even found entanglement in brain cells, neurons now. So so that's really interesting in terms of thinking about psychic abilities. So you've got the idea that two brains could be entangled. So you're getting very close. So if you come across the work of Cleve Baxter... I haven't, no. Because, and you maybe have a look at it. I mean, maybe the listeners can have a look at it as well. But he um, he basically did a, a, a scientific test with a lie detector machine, where he connected it to a plant. Okay, and what he was trying to do was he wanted to set the intention that he was going to harm the plant to see if the you know lie detector test would react to his intention. Okay, and um, when he it didn't really you know he's thinking oh should I hurt the plant should I do this should I do that and nothing was happening and then suddenly he just had this thought about you know getting a lighter and just setting fire to one one of the leaves and as he had that thought the lie detector test just went crazy. Okay, so like you know at that point the plant. Detected. Is this like the secret life of plants? Um, I don't know. It might be. Is, it, is that a book he wrote? Yeah. I, I don't know if it's him, but I have read a book that that described similar things about plants. So I was just wondering. Yeah, if, I, I'm not sure the name of the author. I'm not, so. Yeah, it was Cleve Baxter. But I mean, he extended that not just to plants, but he would take the cells from someone's body and put it in a petri dish, 
and then connect that to a lie detector test as well and then let the person go out travel across the city from hundreds of miles do whatever and any time they came into a very stressful um, situation to write down the time and exactly what happened and then when they came back they all of the times where they had something stressful happen to them on their journey corresponded identically to the times that the cell in the petri dish went mad with the the lie detector test so it was almost it's like this sort of showing this kind of entanglement between cells you know well yeah I, i definitely think that entanglement may well play play a part in this this whole area i mean there's a physicist called brian josephson who won the nobel prize for physics who's um, written a, a theory of how psychic abilities could work based on physics called biological utilization of quantum non-locality. So that, that's, um, that's what a lot of these ideas have drawn from, like Dean Radin, if you're familiar with him, he's, he's drawn from this original theory of Brian Josephson's and, and um, there, there's now some really, really interesting research coming out like suggesting in these areas like for example um, Michael Persinger who does research with stimulating the temporal lobes with uh, magnetic fields oh right okay um, yeah. he's a Canadian uh, researcher and he he's he's claims that now he's he, he can almost enhance psychic abilities and he's found connections with uh, the electromagnetic fields of the earth and times when the electromagnetic field are quiet, the signal in a psychical sense is stronger. So it's almost like when there's no interference, when there's no um, field messing around with our mental processes, then psychical functioning like telepathy and other abilities uh, are more effective. And he's looked at remote viewing and telepathy and areas like that so he but he's not just content with the idea of showing these things are there he wants to develop ways of enhancing them and actually using them practically in the world so it's really exciting research in terms of psychic abilities mm, it is absolutely fascinating so are you doing anything with your own sort of studies and, and uh, experiments so you, you sort of logging them or you, you've got someone to look into them or or do something. Well, I, I'm always I'm always logging. Uh, I've got diaries going back to when I was 14 of um, my out of body experiences. I pretty much write everyone down, and uh, any anything significant that happens to me all goes into the diaries, which is which was a really useful resource for writing the book because I could actually draw on what I'd written at the time rather mm. than just relying on memory, which we we know is not very reliable so so that was really uh, really useful but yeah I, I've uh, since the telepathy kind of work I'm I'm now looking into doing some uh, scientific research on on out-of-body experiences I want to look at the the actual objective evidence the the people seeing things whilst out of the body area which uh, has uh, surprisingly hasn't been majorly researched mm. areas relating to it have like remote viewing but the actual idea of a full out-of-body experience hasn't really been delved into um there's i mean maybe in the near-death experience research i mean there's a uh 
woman called uh, Penny Sartori in Wales, who's done some really interesting research with near-death experiences, where she, for example, compared the reports of someone who'd had a near-death experience and someone who just had a cardiac arrest had just died on the operating table but then been resuscitated um, but didn't have an out-of-body experience. So she compared them and what she found was the people who had had a near-death experience were extremely accurate in their descriptions of what happened to them, whereas the people who hadn't had an out-of-body experience uh, during their period of death were were inaccurate. So there's uh, some really great search, mm. but I, I really want to look at people while in my area where they're still fully healthy and in a normal state, but they leave the body and then what happens to them then? So that's kind of the area that I'm going into. Yeah. And I've just, I've just written my second book, um, which delves into a lot of the science and really looks into all of that and what it suggests and, and how science actually can help us have out-of-body experiences more effectively as well by looking at what science has told us. Like, for example, what I was just saying about Persinger and the, the, the magnetic field is quiet. So you can look that information up. You can, you can go on, uh, I think, spaceweather.com. Oh, and okay, you can, yeah. And you can see that um, there's no sunspots on the sun and no magnetic activity. So you can actually see days that it might be more likely that you, you could have a psychical connection. So Oh I see. So we're more affected when a CME is coming our way basically. Yeah. 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 So so that well, what we what we can do is observe that information and then use that when we're developing psychically and, and, and basically in my book I've gone through all the different scientific studies over the last hundred and thirty years or so and I've picked out the things that really suggest what we can you know what we can use to to enhance our own abilities and whatever yeah okay i, I guess um will you be sort of trying to conduct experiments where perhaps someone could go out the body and you say i want you to go to a certain location and then there will be a, something placed in that location and then sort of from that find out if they could bring back information about the object in, in, a, in a kind of scientific sense where um, there's no cheating? Well, maybe, but but I think how I try to design it would be more that um, we verify the experience from based on the experience rather than based on trying to control the experience or make them operate in a particular way. Because I think... That I think the weakness in some of the studies that have been done before is that they didn't work with the experience. So I think it would, you know, like in my own experiences, for example, the most effective and most accurate experiences have been ones where I've just found myself in a particular location. Um, but those things are still completely verifiable. So mm. um, as long as it's not something that could be publicly known or easily found out, um, then I think it's still a valid way of looking at it. So there's that possibility. We would, I would probably also try and do what you were saying there, but I think it's um, it's more difficult and uh, not as easy to to verify in a way because mm. uh, unless you're very very controlled about how the, the 
the, the objects are placed and who knows about them and all those kinds of things. It, it requires a lot of blinding, you know, triple blind experiments and things like that. Yeah. But yeah, this is all an area I'm, I'm looking into and it's probably the next direction I'm going to go in for sure. But at the yeah. moment I'm, I'm focused on finding ways to teach people how to do these things. Have you, have you come across the Farsight Institute at all, the, the remote viewers at Farsight? Yeah, I've, I've, I've looked, I've come across them, yeah. Because they've done a very strange experiment to do with time, sort of time travel, or to sort of go back in time or forward in time. Yeah. They, they did an experiment where they, normally with remote viewing, you have a target, and so you give you an envelope, for example, with a random number in it, and that random number is someone's associated a target with it. But a person who's looking at the random number doesn't know what the actual target is. They just focus on it, and then they describe what they see. Okay. Sure. So, but what they did in this experiment was they they were given a random number, and to and then in a month's time to just visualize what the target was of that random number. Okay. But at that time, the target hadn't been chosen. All right. So the person did the remote viewing session, and they they wrote down what they saw. They put it into an envelope and they stored it in a safe. Okay. Now the person who was looking who was going to give it a target was going to do that one month after the experiment took place. So this person at any time could go out and just think of a target. Right. So he was driving around Hawaii. He felt inspired, and he thought okay, I'm going to choose this location as my target. And this is one month after the actual uh, target was discovered by the remote viewer. So he looked at this Hawaiian island, this beautiful location, and said, that's the target. When they went back and opened the safe and looked at the envelope, the actual target was that location. Sure. Well, like I, like I say, I mean, remote viewing um, has really great evidence in support of it and and even Ray Hyman the skeptic had to admit that he didn't have an explanation for it so there's uh, there's I, I mean even Richard Wiseman who you probably heard of yeah, well, yeah. well known British skeptic I mean he's admitted that by the standards of any other area of science that psychic abilities are proven so you know <laughs> the <laughs> Um, the evidence is is overwhelming. I think you know it's it's just people don't want to accept it in the mainstream, unfortunately. Yeah, it's all very fascinating stuff. So, um, you know, thank you for coming on, Graham. So your book's out now, isn't it? People can buy it. It's from Obooks Books um, on Amazon if they need to buy yeah. it on there, or it's also available. Avenues good... of the Human Spirit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and we'll put it on the on the sh- on the site as well, so people can see it. And your website, Graham, is grahamnichols.com that's uh, g-r-a-h-a-m-n-i-c-h-o-l-l-s.com so you still finding time to do any courses or are you totally focused on your book at the moment well i've got i've got a lecture at the theosophical society in london coming up on the 16th of october so if anyone wants to come down and uh hear the lecture and uh grab a copy of the book there i'll be at the theosophical society in London, 16th of October. Okay. All right, well, thank you for coming on, Graham. It's absolutely lovely to talk to you and hear about your experiences. Uh, so inspiring. And, um, you know, and I hope to catch up with you again in, in the near future to see how you're getting on with, with your new book and, you know, whatever you're up to. Great. Thanks for having me on.